Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and turn with us today to Romans chapter 1 as we continue the introduction of the exposition of this most glorious New Testament book. Romans 1, 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the dedication and devotion of these precious people to be here this morning for the ministry of your word, for the fellowship that we enjoy not only with you, but the fellowship that we enjoy with one another. I pray that as we now delve into your word, as we commit ourselves and our minds to the study of your word, that you, through the power and person of your spirit, will enlighten our understanding and help us comprehend and grasp the great truths that are contained there, that our lives might be enriched, but more than just enriched, that our lives might be transformed by this word as we are conformed through it and by your spirit to the image and likeness of Christ for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As I just was kind of getting away for a moment from my introduction to the morning's message, as I, as I was reading those seven verses right there, it just, it's like, and in fact, sometimes you'll notice I pause, and I, this is one of those moments where I, I had to pause because the, the words, it seemed like, just leap off the page. And the significance and the meaning of what is contained there. And I don't know about you, but there have been times when I read the scriptures that I will intend on going through a rather lengthy passage and reading. And I'll only get just a very short way into the passage. And I am just absolutely so overwhelmed by what I'm reading and the depth and significance and the substance of what is written there that my mind just stops. And it ponders and savors, as it were, the truths that are found in the portion of Scripture that I'm committing myself to reading. And this just happens to have been for the last month or so. One of those very passages, because in these seven verses, which by many are merely seen as an introduction. And so you, what you do, if you really want to get to the substance of the book or the letter, get on past the introduction. And oftentimes by maintaining that disposition or attitude, we're missing a, a lot of richness and a lot of the foundation that is being laid for what's going to be said in the next 16 chapters of this book. 
and, and how rich this introduction really, really is. And I'm trying to stay on task so my nose doesn't start running. I get emotional thinking about that. I'm going to be beside myself. But this morning what I want to do is I want to continue the exposition of Romans 1, verses 1 through 7 by returning briefly. And, and, and I say briefly, and, and don't hold me to that. Even though that may very well be my intention. But many roads are paved with good intentions that lead nowhere, right? But verses, I want to just return briefly to verses 3 and 4. And, and what I want to do is I want to elaborate on them before finishing Paul's introduction all the way, all the way to verse 7. Now, in verses 3 and 4, Paul clearly and unequivocally tells his readers what the gospel is all about. If you'll look at verse 3... Verse 3 begins with these words concerning His Son. Now let's just for a moment, let's revisit that just to kind of re remind ourselves or kind of restart our memories from where we were last week. Because I know I covered a lot of space. And when I went back this past week to look at, just to see the messages have been posted, not to listen to it, and I see the amount of time, I see 56.41 or 105.3. That means time. I go, oh, they sat there for that long and listened to this. And so I know that I'm doing it in speed fashion. So I'll try by the grace of God to make them briefer, but maintain the content of what I'm sharing. But first Paul writes, the gospel of God is concerning his son. Now, let's just park there for a moment and think about this. You'll recall that the gospel, and I remember saying this to you last week, that the gospel cannot be separated from its leading figure. And I remember telling you that today there are a lot of things, there are a lot of things that are labeled gospel. And they are perhaps very sufficient in meeting felt needs. Maybe they are sufficient in giving some sense of satisfaction to the hearers. But when you listen carefully and you evaluate what it is that you are hearing, you realize that at least asking yourself the question, am I really hearing the gospel? And you recall that in the litmus test I gave you concerning whether you are actually hearing the gospel or not hearing the gospel, is this. Is in what we are hearing, is in what is being preached to us the message of Jesus Christ? Is in everything that is being spoken, is Jesus Christ the central figure, the preeminent person in what we are hearing? Whether it's a sermon that we are hearing calling a gospel sermon whether it is a gospel song that we are singing or gospel music that we are listening to, to step back for a minute and ask ourselves a question, really be discerning. As Chris reminded us a few weeks ago on the duty of discernment, to be discerning and ask ourselves a question, okay, and is what I'm listening to, is what I'm hearing the gospel? It's billing itself that way. It's telling me that it is, but as I listen to it, Am I hearing Christ? Am I seeing 
the person of Jesus Christ? Am I seeing the work of Christ? Am I learning concerning the work of Christ in what's being preached and in what is being sung? Here's the point. Because if that is absent, then you're not hearing the gospel. Because the gospel of God, according to the Apostle Paul, is the gospel, the good news concerning Christ. You cannot in any way, in any shape, form or fashion, separate the person of Christ from the proclamation of the gospel. The minute Christ is removed, the minute Christ is not present, you no longer have the gospel. That's just plain and simply the truth. Because, again, we've, we've downgraded the gospel in the sense of making the gospel that which meets our needs, that which solves our problems, that which makes us feel better, and the gamut goes on and on and on and on. And we've reduced the gospel to that, and yet we need to bring the gospel back to its rightful place of understanding that the gospel is concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Remove Christ. And there is no gospel of God. There is perhaps a message of man, which sadly is what much evangelical preaching has become, but there is no gospel. You'll notice, I I thought that it was probably pretty timely in the fact that we were already into February to change the message on the sign out front, which said Happy New Year. I thought by the time we reached February, there was time to make a change. And so I called Kyle Baker and asked him if he would come because he often does that for me and change the sign. He said, what do you want to put on it? I said, no question what I want to put on it. In light of where we're going right now, I want you to put these words, not ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1, 16. And you notice that's what's on the sign. And I don't know when that'll be changed because I think that speaks volumes of what our emphasis is going to be as we move through this year on Sunday mornings, even though I'll be doing an exposition of Romans, I know that we'll be taking intermittent breaks during seasonal things like Easter and Christmas and different functions that that may come upon the church or different things the Lord may move. But my intention is to stay on track with this exposition. But Spurgeon once wrote on the sweetness. In fact, there was a paragraph that he wrote, and that paragraph was titled in one of his writings, was titled, The Sweetness. Now listen to this, The Sweetness of Preaching Christ. That captured me. Just the title alone, because what it said was, here, who, here is a man who every single day, seven days a week, virtually for his entire adult life from the moment of his salvation was preaching the gospel, at least proclaiming the gospel in some form, either by preaching or writing or Reading, in fact, you know, many people don't know that Spurgeon's Sunday morning sermons were often prepared following his dinner on Saturday night as he retired to his study. And people would say, well, how in the, well, that's kind of a last minute thing, right? Well, not at all. Well, he's preached the gospel the entire week. He's written all week. In fact, they asked him, so Mr. Spurgeon, how then do you know what to preach Before you walk out on Sunday morning, he says, on Saturday evening when I open my Bible and begin to read, every text I read screams to me, preach me. And so here is a man who is writing a brief paragraph that he titles the sweetness of preaching Christ. To him, it was sweet, 
literally sweet to proclaim the gospel. Listen to what he says. Quote, And let me add to this, there is a very special sweetness about preaching Christ and the public proclamation of His Word. Let me put in my witness here. God's Word has been unutterably sweet to my own heart. As I have believed it, it has been remarkably precious to me as I have confessed it as a Christian man. But still, there is something. I cannot tell you what of singular delight about the preaching of His Word. If I might choose my destiny, and if I had ever to step out of heaven for a purpose, it would be heaven to me to be permitted always to be preaching Christ and the glories of His salvation. End of quote. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying there, if I were even in heaven and I were afforded an opportunity to step out of heaven for any reason, the only reason, here we go, (laughs) the only reason that I would ever step out of heaven would be to do what? To preach Christ. To preach the gospel and salvation. And then in another place, he continued by writing, he said, the burden, quote, the burden which the true preacher of God bears, the true preacher of God, he qualifies that. He said, the burden which the true preacher of God bears is for God and on Christ's behalf and for the good of men, preach Christ or preach nothing. Preach Christ or preach nothing. If you can't step in a pulpit this morning and preach Christ, then don't preach. Don't preach. Don't preach anything. In fact, church, when the preacher fails to, or even worse, refuses to preach Christ, men and women cannot. And listen to this. This is, this is radical, but it's true. When the preacher fails to, or even worse, refuses to preach Christ, men and women cannot, cannot truly be converted. They cannot truly be converted. Oh, they might be morally reformed. They might be convicted by virtue of their conscience of some ills that they are doing and have the desire to stop. But that's not conversion. In fact, I think one of the enemy's greatest weapons against the gospel is the doctrine of moralism. Is that somehow we can preach from our pulpits that people need to morally reform. And if we can morally reform, then the the gospel is not necessary. And so we have messages that are geared toward helping people morally reform. Stop doing the things that they're doing that they shouldn't be doing. And then everything is going to be okay. But they're not truly converted. And so what we have in many places is that we have, a, we have churches that are filled with people, but people who are not truly converted. People that have come familiar with. People who have become comfortable with. Have become accustomed to being around the gospel or being around others that see their lives, lifestyles the same way 
as they do. In order for men to be truly converted, in order for men and women to be truly converted, we must, listen church, we must preach the gospel of God and that gospel is concerning His Son. For in that gospel, the gospel of God in Christ is the only way of salvation. There is no other way. The only way of salvation is revealed clearly and distinctly preaching the gospel as a matter of life and death. Men's souls, their eternal destinies destinies are what lies at stake here. And every time a man steps into his pulpit, that's what should be pressing heavily and weightily upon his mind and upon his heart. Is what I am about to proclaim this morning as of such gravity and such weightiness that it has the power, if preached correctly, to do what? To change men's lives. To radically transform men's lives. To convert them. To bring them to faith in Christ. How will they believe? Unless they hear. And how will they hear? Unless someone preaches. And how will they preach unless they're sent? And so we're sent for that very reason to preach. So that our preaching might be heard. And by our preaching of the gospel being heard, people's lives be changed. People's lives being converted. It is extremely important, extremely important. And the importance cannot be overemphasized. There's no way I can overstress the importance that the church return to preaching that exalts Christ, the center person of the gospel from the beginning to the very end. Everything that we do. Now, next in verses 3 and 4, I said we would move briefly after that. But next in verses 3 and 4, Paul addresses the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says here. He says, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and in verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I remember again saying to you last week, the Apostle Paul never, never shied away from placing these two twin truths in the same sentence or in the same teaching. He saw, as it were, no contradiction whatsoever in proclaiming the full humanity of Jesus and at the very same time, on the other side of the coin, proclaiming and declaring the full deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, in regards to Jesus, Paul writes here, he says, "...who was descended from David according to the flesh and then declared to be the Son of God." So you see, descended from David... Declared to be the Son of God. And let's take those two things and break them down just for a little bit here. When we speak of the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ together this way, it is of extreme importance we avoid the error that some have fallen into. And I wanted strongly to reiterate this, that Paul is not saying, 
Paul is not implying in the slightest that Jesus Christ was merely a divine man, nor, on the other hand, was he a human God. You'll recall last week I said, remember who Paul is writing to. Rome was an interesting place. Rome was kind of, well, obviously it was the, the capital of the empire. Rome had pretty much conquered the entire world at that time, its known world. And its, its strength and power reached far. Its tentacles went deep and went far. That's a history lesson our president needs to be given. Reached very, very, very far. In fact, it was called the Peace or Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. Where they had, and they were a very eclectic people. In other words, they were able to bring all kinds of different ideas and things together. And form their beliefs and ideas from all these different things that they were being subjected to. In fact, the, 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 the emperor of Rome believed himself to be what? A human God. A man upon whom divinity rested. And so Paul is saying, I want you to understand right off the bat that that's not what I'm talking about here. God, Jesus Christ is not merely a divine man, nor a human God. Rather, Jesus Christ is what we have come to know theologically in our understanding, the God-man. Now, what does that mean? Another way of saying it, in other words, he is fully God and fully man. Remember, I gave you the, the illustration of don't seeing him as merely 50% man and 50% God, and therefore you have 100% but that he is 100% man and at the same time 100% God. In Christian theology, as I taught you last week, this is referred to as the hypostatic union and, and hypostasis or the hypostatic union that we speak of in theology. It is basically, it, it was narrowed after the, after the Council of Chalcedon in the, in the 4th century where that council decided on the the reality that, Father, that God the Father and God the Son were of the same essence. That idea of that essence developed over the centuries in the, to the church where not merely was it believed as it being true, and it indeed it is true, that the Father and the Son are of the same essence, but it came to represent the hypostasis, began to, began to represent the notion that Christ possessed two complete natures, one God and one man, fully human and full deity, the union of the two natures. So Jesus has two, and remember I, don't, I didn't say had, as if somehow that changed. Jesus has two complete natures, one human, one fully human, and one fully divine. And what the doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches us is that these two natures are united in one person. And that person is the God-man, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not two persons. He is one person. The human and divine are joined together in Him. When Jesus walked this earth, He walked this earth as fully man and at the same time fully God. 
Never, never, ever, ever did he lay aside his deity or lay aside his divinity. Nor since his resurrection and his exaltation to the right hand of God has he laid aside his humanity. He to this very day is fully man and fully God. And we will see him in his full humanity and understand his full deity. The same Jesus that walked the earth. The same Jesus that the disciples handled after the resurrection. The same Jesus that was ascended into heaven is the very same Jesus that will come again. The same Jesus we will see. What a glorious thought. What a glorious thought. You say, Pastor, I don't know whether I can wrap that, my mind around that right now. Well, you know what? You might not be able to fully in this life, but I promise you that the moment that you see Him, it'll all come together. You'll understand fully, even as Paul says, you are fully known. All of that will come together. In verse 3, the, the phrase descended from David is something I want to make sure that we pay close attention to because it has tremendous significance. The prophets, as we're told earlier in our introduction here, the prophets had prophesied very clearly and very succinctly since the time of David, they had prophesied that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. That was the line through which the prophets said this Messiah will come. Every time we've gone through a series of sermons on on Christmas messages, have we not seen that? Have we not seen that? Certainly we have. And remember in verse 2, Romans 1, Paul had already informed his readers that he, speaking of God, had promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures the coming of the Messiah. Prophecies which were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, I know many of you have probably over the years, if you haven't, it's a very good book. It's an older book. It's a thin book, but it's very informative. Called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. One of the early apologetic books after the Jesus movement in the late or mid-70s. But what a tremendous book written. And now he's written many other books in regards to that matter. But in, in that book, he actually deals with the list of prophecies and, and, and he tells you exactly, and he categorizes them for you. I pulled the book, one of the books out yesterday and began to look at it once again. He categorized the hundreds of prophecies that were clearly and succinctly given that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, I, I love one of the illustrations that he uses, and I may not get it exactly right, but the, but the context of it, the gist of it will be right. He said that the odds makers, whoever they are, have said that for any person to have fulfilled even just a small number of prophecies in the complete and full manner in which Jesus fulfilled those prophecies would be the odds of this. If you were to take the state of Texas and fill it with half dollars, six feet high, Take it and shake it, having marked one of the coins, and the first time pull that coin out of the pile. And yet, rather than just being a few prophecies, hundreds 
of prophecies fulfilled specifically and succinctly. 